Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast about how American political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And today we have two very special guests, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. Uh, Jacob Hacker is the Stanley Resser Professor of Political Science and Director of the Institute for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. And Paul Pearson is the John Gross Professor of Political Science at the University of California at Berkeley. And also, Jacob was on Julia's dissertation committee at Yale, and Paul was on my dissertation committee at Berkeley. And fun fact, in graduate school, I actually worked as a research assistant on winner-take-all politics. So welcome, Jacob and Paul. Now, we get to ask you the hard questions this time around. Uh, And we're here to discuss your excellent new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. And I have to say, I've really enjoyed each and every book that you guys have written together. And I, I really admired your ability to see the big picture in American politics, especially in a discipline that sometimes gets a little caught up in the trees and misses the forest. But this book, I think, really feels like a, a kind of new plateau for, for you and a, a real new culmination of insight. And uh, it's the fourth book that you guys have written together. So, you know, wonder if you guys can just kind of start by talking a little bit about how your collaboration has worked so well over the years, despite being on different coasts coasts and how your understanding of American politics has evolved over the years in a way that led up to this book. Well, Lee, thanks. Thanks to all of you guys for having us, having us on um, and getting a chance to talk about this book. And it is, I mean, I do get uh, fascinated thinking back about how this collaboration has worked over now almost 20 years. And I, I think part of what has allowed it to work so well for us is uh, that we like each other a lot. Um, and we feel like our, our intellectual interests are, are broadly very complementary and overlap a lot, but have just enough difference um, that we constantly feel like we're, we're learning from each other. Um, I mean, it has been um, challenging, but also fun to try to hold this together across, uh, across a continent, which has been the case uh, most of the time that we've been working together. Um, and you know, one, I think, interesting thing about it is that even though we're in pretty much constant communication, uh, we find that we just we have to get in the same place uh, every every uh, three or four or five months, so that we can have day long, weekend long, or longer conversations to work through the most challenging aspects of what we're doing. So all our books, uh, an awful lot of the thinking about them has gone on in. in coffee shops or restaurants or bars um, around, around the country in various locations. Um, and I w- would say just in terms of the evolution of our thinking, uh, it really started, and it's interesting to think about this at this moment, it started, I think, with our reaction to the tax cuts that were proposed and then passed in the George W. Bush administration back in 2001 where we were really struck by uh, how out of the mainstream they were and how, um, how, how much they focused on providing benefits to a tiny sliver of the American population, of people who were, had already been winning from the big changes in the income distribution that had been taking place in the US. And now you had a mass political party 
um, really shoveling more benefits towards a tiny sliver of the American electorate. And as political scientists, I think we found that deeply puzzling and have been trying to work through aspects of that puzzle ever since, um, as we've uh, worked through these various uh, book projects. Uh, and uh, we're still working, working on elements of that now. Uh, you know, we, in off-center back in 2005, which dealt with the Bush tax cuts in part, we were trying to understand uh, why the Republican Party had moved so much further away from the center, particularly in economic issues than the, than the Democrats had, who had stayed, we think, pretty close to the center. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people accused us of being shrill at that point and have continued to accuse us of being shrill. But I think pretty much every step of the way, we really haven't been shrill enough to keep up with the evolution of, uh, of the modern Republican Party. And, um, you know, we were as shocked as I think most Americans were and most American analysts were uh, to wake up and find Donald Trump uh, in the White House. Uh, and this book, I think, is an effort to try to understand that development more clearly. Jacob, do you want to add anything? Yeah, so, well, first, I think I should add a fun fact of my own, which is that um, Paul and I had been working together for a few years before we discovered uh, that we had both grown up in the same small college town in Oregon, uh, Eugene, where the University of Oregon is, um, about a decade apart from each other. And I do think there's a way in which our, um, our outlooks uh, are so congruent because we had that kind of common um, upbringing, in, 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 even though we didn't know it uh, when we first started working together. So let me take up where Paul left off because we were shocked and, uh, you know, we were shocked not because the party had raced so far to the right that it could be, you know, sort of merged with a kind of right-wing uh, populist ideology. But, you know, in that sense, we felt like Trump and the way the party governed under him uh, was consistent with the kind of arguments we'd been making about the asymmetric polarization of the parties. But, but the racial element, the anti-immigration element, the degree to which Trump traded in the dog whistle for the bullhorn, that really did shock us. And I think it really caused us to have to reevaluate the way we've been thinking about this transformation. And, um, and I, you know, very frankly, uh, Paul and I came to the conclusion that we had massively understated the role that racial backlash had played in the asymmetric polarization, uh, in the transformation of the party, and in the way in which it had um, managed to, to build a, an electoral base. So that kind of rethinking, I think, is really at the center of the argument that we make in, in Let Them Eat Tweets. So I want to come back to this question about the evolution of the Republican Party, which was one of the things that really jumped out at me reading this book. But first, I want to actually zoom out a little bit and talk about the kind of broad ideas that have animated this research agenda that the two of you have been working on for the last 15 years. I mean, I, I also remember when, when these books were in progress when I was in um, in grad school and in I think 2005 I was actually Jacob I was your TA in a class on inequality in American democracy so I'm wondering if if the two of you could say a few things broadly about your sense uh, about how the the high levels of income inequality in the United States are bad for our democracy well so it was important to us to get 
the concept of extreme inequality into the title of this book because we do think that this is really central to understanding uh, the political dynamics of the past generation. And um, uh, now people sort of know that, um, but I think especially in the last few years, so much of the conversation has focused on Trump and has focused on uh, the racial dimension and the racial cleavages in our politics and the ways in which they're being emphasized that people have have sort of put on the back burner this this other dimension and we think it it is absolutely fundamental to understanding what's going on and it so so two i guess broad points that i would want to make at the outset one is that the shift in the income distribution and the wealth distribution in the u.s is really really striking and um uh, and quite unusual there's really no other rich democracy that looks anything like the U.S. in terms of what the shift in, in uh, the distribution of economic rewards has been. And th that has huge effects on politics, and it has huge effects, we argue, in this book in particular. And here we're partly drawing on Daniel Ziblatt's uh, wonderful book about uh, conservative parties and, and the birth of democracy. Uh, and you know some of the early thinking about this book in, emerged out of conversations with, with Dan, even though he was looking at events about a, gen, a century apart from the ones that we were looking at. Because uh, inequality, rising inequality, poses really big challenges for democracy and for conservative parties in particular. And I'll, I'll just start by saying what we, we describe as sort of a triple threat uh, for democracy that comes from, uh, from rising inequality or extreme inequality. Uh, the first part of that threat is that it, that rising inequality shifts the distribution of economic and, and with it political power within a society, right? So it, it concentrates more resources uh, in the hands of the few. And that's, of course, uh, challenging in and of itself for democracy. The second threat comes from the fact that as incomes in a society diverge, uh, so do interests, right? So uh, the gap between uh, the interests of the, the very wealthy and powerful corporations and the interests of other Americans are likely to grow in a context where inequality is greater. It just becomes harder uh, to fashion sort of positive sum agreements in which lots of people can benefit um, from policy reforms. And so you get more and more of these cases where the interests being advanced by the Republican Party in particular really seem to benefit a, a tiny sliver of the population. And then the third threat, the most chilling one, is uh, that with that increase in power of the, of the wealthy, of economic elites, uh, and the increasing divergence of their interests from those of ordinary citizens, their, their um, affinity for democracy is likely to be, be challenged. Right, and you can actually see this, we describe this in the book, uh, the ways in which you see more and more prominent figures um, on the right in, in American politics describing pretty deep skepticism about democracy. And Stephen Moore, who's like a major advisor for the Trump administration, you know, openly expressing disdain for democracy because of the threat that it potentially poses uh, to the wealthy. Uh, so all of those threats um, are likely to grow in a context where you have high inequality. And that's why it's so central to the arguments that we make. James? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you both for, for joining us on the podcast. And, and thank you for 
for writing the book. I read it. I recommend it to our listeners. And it's, it's interesting because in it, I find the names of so many people that I've worked with over the years that I, many of whom I consider my friends. I, you know, I'm a conservative um, who's been very active in this area. I ran the research department at the Heritage Foundation for a number of years and worked in the Senate for a number of Senate conservatives as well. But I, I think it's a fabulous book. It's very thought provoking. And I really encourage people to check this out because it, you know, there's, there's been an ongoing tension, at least in academic circles uh, between you know, race and identity is the the defining cleavage in American politics, or whether or not it's the economics. And and you two combine those in, I think, a very creative way, and I like it. Um, I'm not sure I'm entirely persuaded about the the book's central thesis, but we can get to that. I, you know, I'm going to today. Hopefully, I'll be able to touch on um, two different things. But I'm going to start in a weird way on on in the empirics, and the and then maybe later in the conversation, circle back to my broader theoretical questions. But, you know, as I just said, I've, I've kind of inhabited the intersection of theory and practice for a number of years now, and it really has informed my understanding of politics and how I think about political developments. And from that, increasingly, I've questioned the insights that scholars of American politics glean from the data that we find in American politics, myself included. And I, I want to touch on Ziblatt's conservative dilemma here. Um, the idea that you know, the public, um, you know, th- this re- reflects a disconnect between uh, the rhetoric, uh, the public rhetoric and the policy preferences of conservatives, of, of, of Republicans in particular. And I agree. And I think we could go a little bit further and say that all who are engaged in politics at a given um, time, whether they be on the right or left, face some sort of dilemma similar to this. But it may be more pronounced on the right. But the question I want to ask, and I'll give you an anecdote as well, um, but is who or what do we mean by conservative, right, or by Republicans, or even the rich, um, right-wing populist or the people? Um, and the one critique I had after reading the book, or one of the critiques, is that it identifies or highlights very real data and very real trends, but then it extrapolates at times from that data um, assumptions that I find uh, perhaps too simplistic. And my, my thinking on this is informed by my experience. And, you know, we can think about, we can start with the most recent, you know, the tax debate, which literally barely passes after Mitch McConnell says there's nothing Republicans agree on than like they do on taxes. And in that debate, you had Marco Rubio and, and Mike Lee differing from the rest of their party on taxes. I work for Jeff Sessions, Mike Lee and Pat Toomey, and they have all three of them extremely different views on, on tax policy. Uh, the health care repeal of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that faltered when Republicans were finally put into a position to have to act on their uh, public rhetoric for because they don't agree on on what they've been saying. And then but most insightful, I think, is the experience I had working on the super committee in 2011, the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, uh, when Senator Pat Toomey was on the on that super committee. And we met every day for hours on end with Democrats and Republicans. And I observed the divisions between people like Rob Portman and Pat Toomey on things like tax policy. And in that committee, Pat Toomey and Max Baucus worked out a, a compromise deal for individual tax reform. And Pat Toomey was uh, the first Republican since George H.W. Bush to put a static tax increase on paper and say, that's my plan and I support it. He, yes, he wanted to con- cut the capital gains tax, and um, but he supported a plan, agreed to a plan with Max Baucus, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee at the time, 
to increase the progressivity of the tax code in two ways. One, to raise static tax revenue and also do so by shifting that burden to the wealthier in income groups. And, and he just wanted to have a, a, a say in how that shift occurred. But overall, the JCT tax tables that came back in the score had to show a net increase in the progressivity of the tax code based on that proposal. And he supported it. And when I read the book, that doesn't seem to, that doesn't come out. And, and I, you, got, you all touch on this in a little bit in the book. And so I was wondering if you could address that. And obviously these are very anecdotal um, concerns that I have here. Um, but I was wondering if you could address those I, and, and share with our listeners um, how you make sense of that stuff as you do in the book. Well, first, James, thank you so much for your kind words about the book. And we certainly don't expect that um, that all readers will agree with all aspects of it. But um, but I do want to clarify the conservative dilemma, which, as you rightly note, is a concept that comes out of Ziblatt's work um, that we use in this context, because uh, it, as Paul was saying before, the dilemma is particularly acute for uh, conservative parties because they are historically the ones that have been most closely aligned with the economic elite. That was certainly true in the early 20th century, and we show that even though there's diversity among those at the top of the income ladder that, uh, and among uh, corporate groups, that the most organized and I think fair to say influential segments of organized money, um, both uh, donors and uh, activists like uh, Charles Koch uh, and uh, organizations like the Chamber of Commerce lean pretty heavily to the right and are pretty critical part of the infrastructure of the of the Republican Party. And so the argument that that Ziblatt makes is 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 simply that in that in the context of of rising inequality or a broadening franchise, when you have a party that's closely allied with those at the top, you just have a basic difficulty of figuring out what's the appeal that's going to keep those people at the top happy and, or what's the agenda that's going to keep those people at the top happy and attract a lot of voters who are not at the top. And, uh, and that's, of course, where the role of uh, racial backlash and cultural appeals comes into our argument and indeed uh, is a central part of Ziblatt's argument. I think the diversity we see, I, I'll just say a, a word about the kind of, I don't think it's anecdotal. I mean, I think there clearly are divisions among Republicans. But if you look at those two examples that you describe, right, in the end, the Republicans came together in 2017 and passed tax, you know, $2 trillion in unfunded tax cuts, 80% of which uh, of the permanent tax cuts go to the top 1%. Uh, and so these are just highly skewed tax cuts uh, that, uh, exp you know, that clearly reflect, and indeed a lot of Republicans said they were designed to appease the corporate and um, billionaire backers of the party. Um, and the healthcare legislation, yes, they failed, but they failed not so much because of divisions within them, within the Republican Party, though that was, cr that was important, but because you know, they, in the end, were unable to muster the votes just barely. And these were two of the least popular pieces of legislation, indeed, the two least popular pieces of legislation, according to data from Chris Warshaw of the last quarter century, right? So they're, they were not being driven, it's quite clear, by the demands of voters. So that's the basic, and that sort of illustrates the conservative dilemma writ large, no matter the differences among Republicans, the Republicans were committed to pursuing an agenda 
that was highly favorable to those at the top and not popular among most Americans. The tax cuts um, are one story. I won't go too deeply into the healthcare story, but um, as you know, the, the healthcare bill was um, was going to have really significant negative effects on coverage, particularly for many areas of the country where Republican support was strongest. And you know, we the reason the Republicans were so committed to pursuing those unpopular ends was that they wanted to use the healthcare bill as a way to set up big tax cuts. So they did the tax cuts without the healthcare bill, but the healthcare bill would have permitted an even larger set of tax cuts. So I just don't think there's real, I think this conservative dilemma is real because we see it in the way in which the Republican Party has behaved. So this is really a book about the Republican Party, but it's also a book about American politics. And there were moments in reading it where I felt like it was kind of missing part of the story, which is that there's another party, the Democratic Party, uh, which has also made some choices that I think you know, have affected the contours and developments of American politics. And, you know, I mean, I totally agree. Parties are not mirror images. There is incredible asymmetry. But in the two-party system, they are tremendously interdependent. And in many ways, they develop their strategies constantly in response to each other. So there's a lot in this book about the choices that the Republican Party has made over the years, including the choices uh, <clears throat> that led to Trump and the way they became a, a politics of, of plutocratic populism. And you know, th those are important choices to discuss. But you know, I'm also curious, and I know this is not a book about the Democrats, and there's a reason that you chose to focus on the Republicans. But you know, I'm just wondering if, if there were different ways in which the Democratic Party could have development, developed that might have made the uh, conservative, uh, that might have undermined the appeal of plutocratic populism. You know, maybe maybe you could say we left out half the story, but of course that made the, the book half as long. And I think one thing that we really wanted to do in this book was uh, to make it relatively short and sweet um, in focusing on a few big points that we see as really fundamental uh, to understanding American politics, but not to try to bring in every possible element um, that, that you would need to tell a whole story. And of course, you know, thinking about the Democrats would be, would be part of that, of that larger story. Uh, but th there is a, a strong reason uh, for why we wanted to focus on the Republican Party, because we believe, uh, and we think there's, and we, there, there's a lot of historical evidence for this. We try to provide some of that historical evidence in the book, uh, there, that, that in an era of high inequality, uh, that the core challenges do run through the conservative party, that the choices of the conservative party are critical. Um, and um, you can see that in, in many other episodes uh, in the past, uh, whether you're looking at Latin America or whether you're looking at, at um, some, some dark chapters in European history. We follow Ziblatt's lead in that respect because we think the logic is compelling in it. And it has very broad implications, I think, about how you think about where American politics is at. Uh, and where you um, think American politics might be going and, and how the country would get into a healthier space than the one that is in. The future of the conservative party uh, within a democratic system is just a, a crucial, crucial issue. Uh, that doesn't mean the Democrats are irrelevant, um, but of course, uh, par, you know, part of the, um, 
part of the argument that we've long made about the Democrats, and we say more about this in Winner Take All Politics than we do in this book, is that the rise of income inequality and the shift in economic power uh, towards uh, big corporations in the US, of course, that does have effect on the Democratic Party uh, as well as the Republican Party. But wh where, whereas it carries the Republican Party over towards an extreme, it actually results in a Democratic Party, which is cross-pressured, right? Which is also reliant increasingly, you know, they, they need resources uh, to run the party too, and they respond to the distribution of influence. And so the expanded role of big money uh, and, of, and of corporate power, that has an effect on the Democratic Party as well. Uh, but, but the effect that it has, while it, it probably does mute their message in ways, and maybe that's the aspect of this that you wanted to explore, Lee, the way in which uh, Democrats are not as responsive to the economic concerns of the less well-to-do because they too have wealthy donors. I think that's true. Uh, but it also means that the Democrats stay more anchored in, towards the center in American politics, even as the Republican Party is, is drifting off uh, towards an extreme. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Uh, Julia? Great. So this is awesome. I have so many questions about both the Democratic and Republican parties, but I'm going to I'm going to actually flip us back to the to the Republican Party, because I think this is really the more pressing set of questions that I have. Um, it, it seemed like in some ways this book, I've been thinking a lot about this genre and I'm calling it what the hell happened to the Republican Party. Um, and I, I, I just use that as a descriptor to talk about some of these books and, and arguments. I mean, I think that, um, for example, the, the Man and Ornstein books about Congress also would be part of this. But it's kind of a genre that that's sprung up over the last decade or so that's turned from looking at the Republican Party as kind of like there was this you know set of tensions between moderates and conservatives or the religious right from whatever, Rockefeller Republicans, to... Like the Republican Party has become not a highly disciplined party, not an ideological party, but something else, right? A, a party of, you know, as you allude to in the book, and is certainly not going to be a mystery to many of our listeners, you know, a party of, um, of white identity is maybe the least um, explosive way I can think of to put that. Right, a party of minority rule, which which I hope we'll get to delve into a little bit as well. Um, and so I, I want to really get a little deeper into how your book might be located in this conversation about how the Republican Party has evolved into this sort of thing that's not quite like anything that maps onto how I think like our colleagues in comparative politics think about about political parties and how it's developed these kind of troubling elements. Um, the first one is is how you would characterize the relationship among the actors in the coalition, so the plutocrats and the cultural conservatives. It's like at times I kind of had the impression that you were embracing a more, I think this is a pretty conventional view, right? There are these rich people who run the party and then they kind of use the cultural conservative views of the mass electorate, or at least that are present in the, in the mass electorate, as a way of bolstering their political fortunes, but that kind of holds those two things as distinct. Um, and at other times, it seems like they're intertwined. And then I guess there's a sort of second corollary question, which is about how Trump fits into this. You know, is Trump a natural outgrowth of some of these longer term dynamics in the Republican Party? And you, you all kind of go back to the 
you know, back to the the post um, civil rights era where where the story tends to begin, is that how we should understand Trump, or should we understand Trump as a kind of a you know kind of a a, a GOP outsider who's then been brought into the to the fold, um, or has in some ways you know, or some ways changed things in a way that may, has as uh, amplified plutocratic politics. So those are my my two big questions about where this fits into our our what what happened to the Republicans canon. Yeah, well, I mean, and I feel like we've been working in that canon for a while, Julia. So I mean, I think the first thing to say is that we do have an approach that is more organizational and more focused on elites than is, I think, the norm within political science. Um, we don't think that the politics of white identity is simply a story about voters um, you know, uh, reacting against um, civil rights and uh, immigration, uh, you know, you know, single-handedly or as a, as a collectivity driving the Republican Party toward a particular outcome. We think the way in which elites, re in this case, responding to the conservative dilemma of figuring out how to uh, pursue a policy agenda consistent with the interests of those uh, supporting the party who are at the very top, how it figured out a set of appeals that would appeal to those not at the very top. Um, but at the same time, the plutocrats are not, um, you know, we say in the book, they're not bond villains in some hidden lair inside a volcano kind of figuring all this out. It's a it's an evolutionary process where the party becomes increasingly aligned with these uh, plutocratic forces um, and at the same time is seeking out a set of strategies that will allow it to maintain its electoral support. And by the way, part of those strategies involve trying to tilt the electoral playing field in, in favor of the party. So I think one of the important features of the argument that might get lost is that the so the, the, the book talks about plutocratic populism, the party is a party of plutocratic, the Republican Party is a party of plutocratic populism, that um, the plutocratic side is kind of self-evident once you start reading the book, but the populist side is, for us, it's an organized, uh, it's a story of organizations as well, right? It's about these groups that we hadn't paid that much attention to in the past, the National Rifle Association, uh, Christian Right, uh, and uh, crucially, though a, a different kind of set of organizations, right-wing media, that the way in which the uh, Republican Party becomes more and more reliant on these outrage-stoking organizations, and in turn is losing control, right, of its capacity to di dictate how, the, how, the, um, how these groups interact with voters and, and therefore how voters uh, interact with the party. And so, you know, there's a great quote from John Boehner's chief of staff um, who says, you know, we fed the beast that ate us. So that in that sense, right, the party is losing control even as it's, um, it's finding a somewhat successful strategy for reconcile, for dealing with the, with the conservative dilemma. James, you want to jump in? Yeah, no, this is, um, well, yes, I do. This is really a, a thought-provoking conversation here. And I've just been, you know, listening to the exchange and listening um, and kind of processing things in my head. And so I want to go to a little bit of a bigger picture question, which is usually where I start. Um, but in thinking about the theory, it seems to me that how we evaluate the central thesis of the book is informed by how we think about politics. 
in in the past on this on this podcast, <clears throat> I've often spoken about kind of two different ways of looking at politics. And we have on one hand this a means ends view or a production process view of politics. And on the other hand, we have this notion of politics and we think about it in terms of forms of government. And in and their political conflict is another really important element. And so in, in a means ends view, we evaluate public policy efforts like voter ID or tax reform or immigration by the outcomes that are that, that either side in a debate wants to achieve. And so those who disagree with those outcomes are typically going to be cast as illegitimate or a threat to the system. And the conflict that they spark or create by their efforts is going to be interpreted as a threat to the system and therefore it can't be allowed. It gets in the way of the good compromise stuff that we all want. And I think this is a hallmark of the of the genre of literature that, that Julia mentions, and especially in the Ornstein and Mann works. But if you take a more of a, a, a classical view or even a view that the framers, I think, took of in terms of forms of government, our focus shifts from the means and ends of actors in an, to an ongoing practice in which people and their elected representatives participate and activists and organizations and advocacy groups, they participate in an ongoing basis to achieve their goals. And when in that view, political conflict isn't bad, right? It, it, it comes with the territory. And in fact, it's even a positive because it reveals information and makes compromise possible. In fact, I often say you can't have compromise without conflict. There's just no way, by definition, that's impossible. And so, and by conflict, I mean political conflict, not violent conflict. But the threat, I think, that the book centers on should be informed by the latter view. It should be examined through the lens of the latter. Uh, I like the comparative nature of the book, but I'm not sure that the trends that, that you both document in the U United Kingdom and Germany mean the same things in, in America and how we think about American politics. Because as I often say, no one rules in America. Our system is set up so that the majority doesn't rule and the minority doesn't rule. It, our system is not designed to make it hard to rule. It makes it impossible because it creates a permanent space a permanent space in which politics can occur, can unfold. It breaks the old Polydian cycle where, you know, Polydia says that we have this ongoing cycle where we're different. Um, it's the, where different um, things, different forms of government will degenerate into their worst ones and then another one will come along and on so on and so on. He says it's the cycle of, of constitutions, right? And every political system, Polybius says, has uh, corruption growing within it from which it is inseparable. Well, you know, Jimmy Madison and his colleagues, maybe they don't uh, articulate it in the same way or it's a little bit uh, unconscious, but they break this code. And they're the first group of people in the history of, of, of mankind, to my knowledge, to create a permanent space in which politics could unfold. And it was imperfect then and it's still imperfect today. And we're getting better every year. And we hopefully we keep aiming at that. But what Madison really centered on, and, and I apologize for the long uh, lead up to my question here is that, you know, ambition counteracts ambition and he uses conflict to buttress the conflict from the diversity and all the different interests and regional identities and everything else in America to buttress the system and achieve justice and the general good. It, ha it, it allows us to transcend our own narrow perspectives in life and thinking about Socrates and get a better understanding of the universal. And so in this view, there is no real conservative dilemma because there's no one group of people on one hand and no one group of plutocrats on the other that are saying, how do we persuade those people? There's just a lot of individual people who can come together and form groups. And they're basically saying, how do we convince or persuade 
enough people in all of these different arenas of American politics, whether it be the Electoral College, whether it be the White House, whether it be the Senate, the House, the Supreme Court, anywhere it may be. How do we persuade people that this is right? And it's about persuasion. It's not about rule. And so I guess my question is, or just to see what you think about this, is that the book, as I take it away, it says that James Madison was wrong. That, that you can have these very cohesive and homogenous groups that can come together and then try to rule in American politics. And, and if that's the case, I agree with you very much. And I think that's the, the conflict becomes very problematic and we're back into what the Polybius was talking about. But I'm, I, I share a similar despondency about where we are in American politics today. But I guess my view is that it's because we don't have enough conflict. We don't have enough people saying, I think immigration should be this and I'm gonna to go to Congress and we're gonna have a lot of action in Congress to have that outcome. Instead, we have a bunch of public rhetoric. We have a lot of race baiting and a lot of other stuff happening. I think there's a stuff on all sides. I'm not saying they're all equally to blame, but I do think that the shift towards a means ends view of government is pervasive throughout liberal circles and conservative circles. And so, I mean, I guess my just how do you react to that? And do you think I'm crazy or, you know, what how would you encourage me to, to think about this differently so that I my theoretical um, suspicions, if you will, about your kind of central thesis uh, can be set aside? Well, I, I don't think you're crazy. Um, and I think the distinction that you you drew at the beginning uh, makes a good deal of sense. Um, but and let me just try to run it through. I think our, our understanding of uh, what's what's been going on in American politics over the last generation and, and most intensely in the period that we're experiencing um, right now. So um, politics is in significant part about intense conflicts of interest in which in our view, and I think this is a, a way in which we're in line with, with the way that some political scientists think about this, but not most of, not most of the people in, in our discipline who I think are much more focused on the idea that voters and public opinion uh, are really uh, driving the action. We do think um, powerful groups who really care about what government wants, uh, what, what government does um, and mobilize to try to pursue their interests um, are really, really important in politics. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, um, but um, it becomes problematic when relatively narrow groups are able, despite our Madisonian system, um, to, um, to get their interests to dominate over those of others. Uh, and we do believe that what we are very loosely calling plutocrats um, have become extremely powerful. Of course, it's a loose coalition and they have lots of arguments amongst themselves, uh, but when the, the two main things that a party does when it, when it gains unified control of the American government in 2016, when the two main things that it does is to slash taxes in order to provide huge benefits for corporations and the wealthy, when there is no sign in public opinion that ordinary voters, including Republican voters, want this. And then their second bill is to slash people's health care benefits. Okay, they failed. They came one or two votes short of doing this, but it's what they wanted to do. And it's what they spent months trying to do. And they tried to do it through other means, including now arguing before the Supreme Court. 
But again, attempted to slash hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of healthcare spending, again, so that they can provide benefits for a tiny slice of Americans, again, with nothing in public opinion suggesting that that is what people wanted. Um, that's, and it's, for people who study democratic politics, that's an astonishing thing. And so to, to just to turn to your second point, it suggests that the Madisonian system is not working the way in which it was intended. Um, and I agree with the way that you described it, and I think it describes very important elements of America's past, right, and the ways in which there's a kind of pluralism and fragmentation of interests, uh, forcing compromise. Uh, nobody gets everything they want. Nobody even gets most of what they want. Everybody gets a little bit, hope, we hope, right, or people hope. But that's, that's not the way the political system has been operating um, over the, really, I think, over the last 20 or 30 years, but clearly in the current, in the current period. And the most striking element to me, to me about this and the way in which I really fear about the development of our political institutions, because I don't think they're operating the way that, um, I, the way that Madison hoped that they would and that, and that in some ways they did for a long period of time. When you see a president running roughshod over the separation of powers and other key elements of the American constitutional design, uh, when you see overturning the spending power of Congress and saying, I'm just going to take this money that you allocated for one purpose and I'm going to use it for a totally different purpose, and all the members of his party fall in line, right, um, and defend behavior that's just indefensible behavior right, um, and show complete loyalty to it, um, then there has been a, 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 you know, a serious, serious breakdown of those Madisonian institutions. And we argue that's because this coalition of powerful interests uh, has formed a strong, if tension-filled alliance within the party, and they think that they're getting a lot out of the arrangement that they've made, and they're willing to go along with corruption and incompetence right? uh, and a betrayal of the principles that they say that they supported uh, because powerful actors within the party are benefiting from it. So let's stick on this point about uh, American political institutions and our, our, our weird system. I mean, it's, it's a very unusual system when you look at democracies around the world. And in fact, in, in your in the conclusion, you guys write that, uh, and I quote, the place to start is with American institutions, you know, which could basically be the tagline for this podcast. And, and, in, and you also note that the <coughs> version of right wing populism is is peculiar to America that you that that it deserves its own name. So, you know, I want to and, and I want to hear ask you both to kind of weigh in on this question of the way in which America's particular institutions may be responsible for the pathologies that American politics is experiencing now and, and what, if anything, could or should be done to change them. Jacob, you want to go first? Yeah. So then first, and I, I want to return to Julia's earlier question about where Trump is, fits within the evolution of the Republican Party, because I actually think you can answer that question much more easily once you think about the institutional order that um, James and Paul were talking about. So, you know, the Constitution is a, a founding document that was constructed for a very different society, right? And it's been updated, of course, but uh, both formally and informally. But 
there are a number of elements of it that um, that are, let's just say, problematic. And what I think, uh, and I'll mention too, just you know, the, because they they met, they loom so large right now. One and probably the the one that's most obvious when we look at what's happening with the the president is the extent to which the separation of powers you know rests on norms and um, forbearance, and that it just doesn't work particularly well or well at all when you have the kind of um, organized pressure and kind of the plutocrat, what we call the plutocratic populist kind of um, structure of the contemporary Republican Party. And, you know, I do think that Trump, there's one respect in which Trump is just a fundamental break, right? Because no prior Republican president um, got the kind of, uh, of you know, a based loyalty that Trump has gotten from the party. And I think that has a lot to do with Trump's capacity to sort of exploit the or the combination of organized money and organized outrage uh, that had formed this um, party up to his presidency, and you know he is uh, he he has been willing to go along with what the plutocrats want, even as he's stoked the outrage. Um, but he's also just focused very very heavily on demanding that everyone, all the national politicians, bend the knee or face retribution from him or from the organs of outrage, uh, particularly right-wing media. So that Madisonian system, the way in which the separation of powers was supposed to work has not worked well in the context of this kind of party. The other one that has really helped, the other feature that's really helped the Republican Party is the degree to which the system is so tilted in favor of rural interests and voters. And, and that's relevant now far more than in the past, not just because population differences between you know, big and populous and less populous states have grown, but because the Republican Party has become so much more aligned uh, with rural voters. And so you see it most obviously in the Senate, um, you know, the Kavanaugh nomination goes through um, despite, you know, well more than half, something like 53% of senators opposing, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, senators representing 53% of the population opposing the nomination. And you also see it, of course, in the ability of the Republicans to gerrymander because they can uh, cram Democratic voters into urban areas. And, and I think you see it also in the voter suppression measures that you see adopted at the state level, just because so many more states are, are governed by uh, by Republicans, um, because again, um, the the our system rewards uh, parties for holding territory as well as um, for winning votes. So, I think those are the two most important uh, sort of features of our institutions that have not stood up well, and it, and and both have led to the kind of uh, crisis of governance we face today. So, the way in which the separation of powers is an ill fit for this kind of party and the rural bias of the system. Paul, is there anything you, you would want to add? Yeah, yeah, just a, a, a couple of quick quick things. So, so one is just on this uh, territorial divide, which Jacob described well, and which I think is a, just a huge uh, challenge uh, for contemporary societies, given the way um, that our system was designed, the way the way that it designed representation. Um, and you know, as, as the country becomes polarized along these territorial lines between urban and rural areas, and I sh should add, you know, this, this is a huge problem given that the economy has shifted in a direction in which um, 
uh, success in um, a knowledge economy really rests on the success of, of urban agglomerations. More and more of economic production uh, is driven there and located there. Um, and that presents challenges, but it, 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 it does not mesh well with, uh, with the territorial representation that we have. And there is a danger here, uh, which you know, Jacob alluded to, and I think Julie was kind of referring to before, of, of this kind of counter-majoritarian politics emerge. And I'll just give you know, one indication of that. Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. And yet a majority of the Supreme Court is appointed by Republican presidents. Uh, and the Supreme Court is an incredibly powerful actor now, um, especially with Congress so gridlocked, right? So that's just a, that's a huge um, challenge uh, in, the, in the contemporary structure of American political institutions. And, and one final one that I'll mention, uh, which is that American political institutions were designed as, as um, James was suggesting before, you know, really designed to try to encourage compromise and consensus. They do not work well in a context where you have a political party that seeks office, seeks to, and it seeks office and plays a central role in government by essentially running against the idea of governance, right? Uh, running to dismantle as Newt Gingrich, you know, really, Newt Gingrich really sort of fashioned this path to begin with, but it's continued, right? Um, to run down the prospects for governance, right? And we see that we haven't talked at all about, about the pandemic that we're living through, which is a complete public health catastrophe, right? In which the US stands alone, right? Because you have an executive branch that is not interested in governing, right? And has systematically building on prior efforts by other Republicans over the past 25 years, systematically dismantled the capacity of government to respond to these kinds of challenges, right? So we have a system that requires consensus and, and compromise, but we no longer have a party system that can generate it. Uh, and we believe that that is primarily because of the way in which the Republican Party has responded to the intensifying conservative dilemma that it faces. Yeah. So, Paul, you're, you're kind of reading my mind there. I've been thinking a lot about this stuff, too. And it, it has occurred to me, even before we were planning on recording this podcast, I was kind of thinking about how I've very recently come to the uh, to the point of being obsessed with minority rule and minoritarian politics in American politics and kind of thinking about how we've all spent the last 10 or 15 years thinking about polarization. Um, my cat is once again joining the podcast. She doesn't like it either. You know, thinking about polarization and really the story is minority rule and that the two of you were, were kind of on top of this um, in the mid 2000s or, you know, probably before that was when your book came out. Um, so, you know, I, I want to add one thing to the institutional discussion and then pose a final question. And the thing that I want to add to the institutional discussion is, you know, we've talked about geographic representation. I agree with all that. Um, and other forms of institutions, but we can't really understand, as, as Jacob described, the hold that Trump has on the Republican Party without understanding the development of the presidentialization of party politics and the growth of the role of the presidency in a lot of ways, but specifically as leaders of their of their parties. And then when we add to that, that Trump is a minority president, right? He's he's a president who won a you know plurality of 
his own party is not terribly uncommon, but it's notable, I think, in this context, and then lost the popular vote by a substantial number of votes. Once again, my cat Sydney is joining me like a Greek chorus meowing about the state of affairs. So I think that that's, that's a really dire situation on top of, on top of the, the courts and the Congress and the, the public health crisis and everything else that you mentioned. But I guess that the question I have just invites you to speculate how much like how much minority rule can we can we withstand? Is there going to be a breaking point in terms of minority rule in institutions? That's my that's my I think difficult <laughs> dire question. Well, so just uh, uh, quickly on the the first point about presidentialism, and I, we could have a longer conversation about this. I do think. Um, this is a bigger problem for the Republican Party, you know, the kind of follow the president wherever the president, you know, the president is the leader, follow them wherever. You know, I think, I think the Democratic Party is still more pluralistic and less, uh, less inclined in that way for a variety of reasons. I mean, I, I think some of it comes back to political institutions that require Democrats to be more open to compromise uh, in order to be successful. They have to, they have to be able to succeed in uh, jurisdictions that are actually pretty red in the distribution of voters and Republicans don't face that same problem. So I think they're a little bit more willing to be homogeneous and also because I do feel like they built their party around um, this kind of ident intense identity politics that is really furthered by right-wing media. I think that's a very important element of this and I think the right-wing media is actually quite different from uh, the role of media on the left. I think the, the empirical evidence on that now is very clear. Um, and so, you know, we go back to the Bush administration, you know, Bush, um, people forget, right? Um, Bush's second term was also a catastrophe, um, you know, much as, as the end of Trump's turn, term is turning into, into a catastrophe. At this point in Bush's second term, uh, he was polling in the, in the high 20s, I believe, in terms of his approval rating. Right, so there's something really distinctive, I think, about what's happening on the Republican side. Now, now, how how far can we go with minoritarian uh, politics? So, so I've always my my crystal ball has always been cloudy, and after the the 2016 election, I just threw it away. So I don't I don't know how far we can go with any of this stuff. But <laughs> um, and I I think that you know some of this we're going to have to find ways to deal with. Uh, because I don't really think American political institutions are likely to change in, in, um, in big ways. You know, ch changing American political institutions, the structure of the Constitution, uh, was designed to be incredibly difficult, right? It's much more difficult than it is in most democracies. So, you know, I, I think that, that the current apportionment of the Senate is, a, you know, is, is hugely unfair. And I think it's very problematic for governance, but I don't really expect it to change, except you know, maybe you get DC statehood or something like that. It might change at the margins. But you know, I think this is a, is a huge problem, but it's, and it's why rather than proposing at the end of the book uh, reforms to the constitution, uh, which we don't think is gonna happen, uh, we turn instead to thinking about possible futures for the conservative party in the US that might be more consistent with more successful governance. And, and let me just jump in and, and say two things. I mean, the first is that I misspoke earlier. Kavanaugh was, a, was opposed by senators representing 56% of the country, 
not 53%. <laughs> so yes, so he was confirmed to the court with a, a with but with the support of senators who represented collectively 44% of the US population and that I think really drives home this this point about uh, minoritarianism in, in the American system and and I agree with Paul that it's also pretty baked into um, hardwired into the system but but I do think and there's one exception with the Senate, I would just say, and it, it's that the filibuster has become such an important additional hurdle that requiring 60 votes um, to pass all legislation but the budget um, is such a high additional hurdle. That, but I think the filibuster could could be addressed. But I, I think that this sort of draws in sharp relief why the American form of right-wing populism, what we call plutocratic populism, is is distinctive. It's not just that um, it combines this organized, the role of organized money with this organized right-wing populist outrage, but also that it is managed to achieve power despite not having uh, majority support. And in other countries with, as Lee has written in his, his wonderful new book about ending the doom loop of polarization, in other countries, you just wouldn't see a right-wing populist leader uh, managed to eke out a win over his opponents to take over a party, and then that party eke out a win to take over a country, right? Our system has that, that bug, and that bug is getting worse, where you can get a half of a half strategy to, to, to gain power. And so we write in, in the book that while books like uh, Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky's How Democracies Die draw from the Latin American experience to talk about the authoritarian threat, the president who takes over. Um, we also just think there's a probably a more um, pervasive, prevalent, and uh, an enduring threat, which we call the counter-majoritarian threat, the threat that a, um, that a minority um, could, uh, could essentially lock in unpopular priorities. And, and I guess the last thing to say here is that we've had a counter-majoritarian court. We've had, you know, Supreme Court before. That's a key feature of the Supreme Court. But never before have we had a counter-majoritarian court aligned with a counter-majoritarian uh, party, aligned with a counter-majoritarian set of organized interests, the NRA, Christian right, minority interests that nonetheless want to dictate outcomes and a counter-majoritarian set of organized interests in the organized organs of plutocracy, right? Um, which is, as the history of conservative parties suggests, um, you know, are fearful of majority rule, but quite happy um, with minority power. So to me, that's the, that's the combined threat that worries us. And, I, and Julia, I think you, you nicely set that up. Yeah, I think I just want to jump in on this here and continue this and kind of speculate, ask you to speculate on the, <clears throat> excuse me, the future of the Republican Party. But the the counter-majoritarian threat, I think, has to be evaluated within the context of a form of government that we have. And I think that, you know, the presidency is not a nationally elected institution. It never has been. Maybe it should be. And that's a debate that I think is is fine to have. And if that's what people, um, you know, we want to get rid of the Electoral College, that's fine. But, you know, thinking about John Marshall himself, not necessarily a uh, an ardent um, anti, you know, anti-federalist by any means, 
Um, you know, he says in what McCulloch v. Maryland, you know, the people means the people in the various states. Those are the entities, where, for better or worse, uh, where the people gather. There is no national electorate from a political legal perspective. There certainly is culturally, economic and everything else. But and so I think that to say that, you know, we have a counter majoritarian presidency, well, but we, we have a majoritarian presidency within the Electoral College. If we didn't, then we would, it would be a coup. Um, and so I, th- I, I do think that's an important uh, point to, to emphasize. The Senate is, is absolutely counter-majoritarian. It was designed that way. But the senators themselves reflect uh, the interest or the, 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 the support of voters of a majority of their, relative, uh, of their respective electorates. Uh, the court is 100% counter-majoritarian, and it is designed that way. And I think that we've pushed far too much to the courts. And I think we've pushed far too much to the presidency. And I think that Congress is really the breakdown in Congress explains the dysfunction we see today. And I think the Republican Party, I agree with you here, is at the center of that. And I, I share with you a brief story. In 2016, I was in a meeting in a room full of senators and we were just speculating on the outcome. And they, one of them asked me, what do you think the worst outcome is, James? And, and I said, it's if we win everything. And everybody looked at me like I had eight heads or something like that. That's the worst outcome. And the reason I said that is I shared with them at the time was that, yes, because we have no clue what we believe in, what we stand for and what we want to do if given the opportunity. Uh, and the worst place to figure out what you stand for as a party is when you're on top. And I think the past four years have really demonstrated that. And I think the, the shift towards a more bellicose rhetoric to mask that, I think it can be understood in those terms. But the GOP rhetoric has lots of promises, but literally no action in places like Congress. You know, Obamacare, I think we can overstate the degree to which Republicans wanted to pass it. In my interpretation, they felt compelled to. For seven years, they had promised to do so. They were elected by voters in their states and districts on that promise, among other things. And then when given the opportunity, they desperately didn't want to because conflict in the legislative process reveals uh, information that then makes it easier to hold people accountable. In 2015, I worked in the Senate and we pushed uh, the senators I worked for at the time. We practically had to drag the Republican Party, the Senate Republican Caucus, kicking and screaming to pass a reconciliation bill to repeal Obamacare that was going to be vetoed and everybody knew it would be. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my professional life. And the reason it was painful was because I think all the senators and especially the leadership understood that if that happened, it would form a baseline and it would make it it would say, okay, if you can do that now, why can't you do it if you have a Republican in the White House? And then that would create problems for them. So I I think far from the party agreeing on it, I don't think the party agrees on health care at all. Um, I think that that sense of disagreement really in, in their inability to deliver on that, that promise really explains the sense of existential dread that they felt surrounding the tax cut um, bill. And really, I think, explains why it passed in the end. Right? I, if, 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 if you didn't have that level of existential dread, in my opinion, I don't think the tax bill passes. It didn't pass because they agree on the, 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 the outcome. I think they agreed on a little bit more than, say, Obamacare. It passed because they couldn't pass health care. And they were convinced that after all these years of making promises on things like tax reform and health care, if they didn't do any of it, that that would just be it would be impossible to hide from. And I think if you look at the Senate, all they do today, they're a glorified HR agency. And they're basically saying, vote for us. So we'll vote for somebody else. And then that person will do something about it. All the stuff that we say is a problem. And you have people like Marco Rubio saying, we need to redefine conservatism and we, re- we need people to, to figure this out. And I'm like, well, you're a senator. Why don't you do it? 
that's where presumably you would do it, right? I mean, you would you would say, what are the public policies? And then you would push those public policies, but we don't have that. And so, I, you know, and I think the recent court decisions are really problematic for different parts of the, of the conservative movement. And so I think right now, you know, after years of saying we have to get the House and we have to get the Senate and now we got to get the White House and now we got to get our judges and then to have literally nothing to show for it. And maybe I'm overstating that a bit for to be provocative or to make the point clear. You know, the GOP right now, and I know that you downplayed the GOP civil war, and I think I agree with you, but there is there is, there is substantial disagreement there. And, so, you know, big tension on things like immigration, on trade, on health care and yes, even taxes and even when I was on the Hill, you had people quietly whispering, is it really the holy grail of politics to, to drop the top marginal tax rate like two percentage points? Like what, what's the big deal, right? And, and I think that's going to come back to the fore. And so given all of this churn and, and, the, and yes, I think the sense of an other really helps escape these very real things that conservatives are grappling with right now and Republicans and their ability to, to demonize someone else makes them, sh- they're able to shift blame for outcomes when they differ from how they led people to expect. But at the same time, they're able to claim credit for the fact that they didn't turn out even worse because they vanquished this evil other. I think the left does that too. But how do you see this playing out if the Republican Party has a, cl- a there's a clean sweep for Democrats in November? Uh, how, what do you see? You know, I know you, and I agree, the crystal ball of mine is, my, I've never had a crystal ball. Um, but you know, I, I do like to speculate because I think it's fun and it helps to inform our thinking. So what I mean, how do you see the different parts of the party in the movement uh, dealing with this in, in the years to, to come if they lose everything in November? Sorry, there's a lot to cover there. Um, and but I, I just I need to push back a little bit on this idea that like the party doesn't know what it wants and it didn't really mean it. It didn't really you know, there's lots of disagreement. Um, you know, that Mitch McConnell said at the end of 2017, we quote this in the book, that it was the best year for conservatives in his professional career. Um, and Charles Koch said the party's accomplished more in the last five years. Really, he meant, you know, since the rise of the Tea Party had stymied uh, the Obama administration and the Democrats. The part we've accomplished more in the last five years uh, than we had uh, in the previous 30 years that I was working at this stuff. And I just want to touch base on the and sorry to interrupt the McConnell quote. I think it's a fabulous example of the dynamic I just just mentioned. What McConnell also said in the same literally the same breath was this is, you know, blame Democrats for historic obstruction. And we couldn't do anything because of Democrats obstructing. And then in the same breath literally says best Congress ever. And what he's doing is, I call it the Senate two-step. He's, he's, he's deflecting blame to Democrats because the outcomes differed from what he led people to expect while he's taking credit for the fact that it didn't turn out worse. I, I, don't, I don't understand why you're interrupting me when I just started talking about this. Um, because he went on to list all the things that they've accomplished, most importantly, the tax cuts and all those judges, which is critical to their agenda. And if you look at the last 20 years, 25 years of Republicans in government, Every time they get in a position of power, they try to distribute more money for the wealthiest Americans and for big corporations. Newt Gingrich did it, George W. Bush did it, John Boehner did it when they got back in a position to do it, um, and now Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are doing it. And so I'm reminded a little of you know, the, the line in, in The Importance of Being Earnest where the character says, you know, if you lose one parent, 
that can seem like misfortune, but if you lose two, it starts to seem like carelessness. You know, so, you know, consistently, this has been the top of their political agenda. It's not an accident, right? It's consistent. It's been consistent for 25 years and it is not being driven by public opinion. It's not being driven by the concerns of ordinary voters, not even Republican voters. If you ask voters what their concerns are about the tax system, they say their biggest concern, and this has been consistent for decades, is that the rich don't pay their share, right? And Republicans take that information and they respond by reducing the share that the rich pay in taxes. So I, I just don't accept that this has not been a top consistent priority for the party. But I want, I want to say something also about this point about uh, the counter-majoritarian features of the system. And I agree with you, James, that, that um, the system was designed to protect minorities and not to empower majorities. Now, it's worth mentioning in this context that James Madison, right, who we think of as the architect and who you were speaking glowingly about before, thought that the Senate, that the Senate should be based on population. He didn't think that a, that a state that had almost no people in it should get as much representation, but he lost that fight. And of course, um, you know, Grover Norquist uh, had a nice passage about this recently, which I think reflects the current reality. And he was speaking glowingly about the fact that um, there are all these states out West that have like three people in them, and two of them are Republican senators, and the third is a Republican member of Congress, right? Which is, which is funny, right? Um, and maybe historically it's not been a huge problem for the American system because the small states weren't aligned, dramatically more aligned with one political party than they were with the other, right? But, but the problem becomes when you shift from a system in which majorities find it hard to get their way to a system in which minorities increasingly find it easy to get their way because the system systematically overrepresents their interests. Jacob, do you want to say anything quickly there? And then well, we'll only only that, you know, James asked about the future. Um, well, uh, two things. First, the Koch, just to, on the correction front, um, Charles Koch uh, said that he had accomplished more in the past five years than in the previous 50 years, um, not um, not 30. So it's even better than than that from his standpoint. But um and, and I and I can't help but note that it may well have been, and I think it was, that the uh, failure of the uh, repeal and replace legislation, uh, uh, the health care bill, um, in, you know, was part of the reason Republicans were so eager to pass the tax bill. But but when the tax bill looked in doubt, the reasons that Republicans gave for moving to pass it um, were really pretty specific. Um, you know. Uh, the Lindsey Graham said that if the bill failed, the financial contributions will stop. Um, another Republican uh, from New York uh, warned that my donors are basically saying, get it done or don't ever call me again. Um, so, you know, I don't want to um, I don't want to lean too heavily on uh, what, re what Republicans said they were up to, but I do think it's relevant. So we, despite all this, we really strongly believe that uh, for all the reasons that Paul was articulating about the difficulty of changing the system, that you need to have two strong, responsible parties um, to have a well-governing system. And we have written about the way in which the, re the moderate Republican Party of the mid-20th century was an essential governing partner and behind many of the most important policies that created uh, American prosperity. We just don't think that 
the current Republican Party is playing that role. And, and I think we make a pretty strong case that they're not and try to explain why. Um, so the, the question is what, you know, what do you, what's going to take to, um, to bring the Republican Party to a place where it, A, is interested in governance, and B, is truly multiracial, uh, which is an essential, I think, thing in a multi increasingly multiracial uh, society. And, you know, we, we don't have any single solution, magic bullet, but we do emphasize that it's going to take more than just a decisive defeat of Donald Trump, as important as that is or even a, a, a big swing in Congress. It's going, to take, it's going to take dealing with the two fundamental realities that are driving uh, uh, the Republican Party to the extreme. Uh, one, is, and the most important one, is just the way in which it's just the extreme inequality we have in the United States has empowered um, a narrow slice of Americans with uh, relatively extreme uh, goals. And the second is the way in which that's gotten married to these groups, these outrage groups. And so we have a kind of extra institutional vision here. We think that reforming the policies and the institutions and reducing this way of money in politics all are important. But fundamentally, you have to think about, well, what are the solutions that are going to change the incentives of those in office um, and, un and, and, and basically, re you know, reverse this vicious cycle um, that we describe as, as plutocracy and, and right-wing populism have become fused together in an extreme party and, and set up a more virtuous cycle in which the party is competing broadly for the center and interested in governance and not um, incentivized, uh, much as I hate that word, not incentivized to demonize its opponents and to demonize vulnerable uh, members of American society. All right. So we've gone on for, for quite a lot. There's there's so much to cover and we could probably go on for another two hours. Um, but it's, I think it's it's a moment to conclude now and kind of, you know, come away with some takeaways. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, uh, a, a lot about this, this real, I mean, that's something I obsess about, this real challenge of American political institutions to handle this current alignment of our parties and the way in which inequality and, and partisan polarization keep driving each other. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more pessimistic about the ability of, of our institutions to handle it, which is why, you know, I, I'm a big believer in electoral reform as long shot as it may be. But, you know, I mean, I think this, this conversation really kind of deepens my deep pessimism uh, about American political institutions. So thank you for that. Julia? Uh, same. Although I, I want to end on, I don't know if this is actually really positive, but just I was just sort of thinking about my appreciation for the thought process in, in the book and in this conversation around our kind of evolving sense of the role of, of race um, in American parties and in what's happened in the Republican Party and this sort of dynamic um, that that Paul and Jacob have talked about on this on this in this conversation and in the book about kind of revising some of their earlier thinking. And it's very uh, that you know it's something that um, I really appreciate in scholarship is when we when we go back and think about um, other you know factors we could have included factors we overemphasized what whatever it may be. I I really appreciate that that scholarly openness and integrity, James. 
yeah, uh, quick takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, both of you, for for joining us. I strongly encourage our, our listeners to check this book out. I think it's a, it's a fabulous book. It'll definitely get you thinking on things. And I apologize for interrupting earlier. One of the you know the, t- the 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 complications of of having a podcast where you try to create a, a conversation is it's hard to have the interjection in the back and forth. Um, but I, I do apologize for the interruption. But the last quick point I'll make is that this book has changed. You know, it's really helped me think about how I make sense of the problem, and it reinforces this lack of action, especially in Congress in our politics, that I see as the problem. And and I think to kind of mesh it with with the way you you all interpret it. The problem isn't necessarily plutocrats trying to achieve their goals, but I think it's where they try to achieve their goals, right? If you see Congress as a factory, you're going to then want to control the means of production, which means you have to win elections to get gavels and elections cost money and to persuade the voters to vote for people. You you push issues to the to the executive in the courts. And those are realms where, you know, you can't, the executive is immune to public pressure almost. And, and, and wealthy people can, can have an indirect and outsized role there. So I agree with, I agree with you there. So again, thank you. I'm going to continue to think about this. I'm going to have to revisit the book after our discussion. Uh, but I really enjoyed the conversation. Jacob, final thoughts? Just that I'm really grateful to um, you for allowing us to come on and, and give this discussion and uh, give us a chance to talk about the book. And I hope people will pick it up. But uh, I also hope they'll they'll take something out of this conversation. For me, at least, what I took away was, um, as we started to discuss it more deeply, was was just how central American political institutions are to this story and how much we tend to take them for granted because we're so deeply uh, you know, uh, embedded in them in our in our conversations. So that's that's to me a very helpful reminder, and I appreciate it. Paul, final thoughts? I just want I want to echo everybody's thanks, and um, and it's a good thing to have it have it be a lively uh, conversation with with some some disagreement. And I and I and I, I just want to say I, I appreciate Julia what you were saying. Um, I, I think we ended up uh, talking about a lot of really important things, not probably talking a, a, as much as we might have about about race. Um, and I have to I'll just end by saying, because this is where the book ends, I think on kind of a hopeful note, even though there's a lot that is um, that I actually think is quite frightening about the stuff that we talk about in the book. But we do think that the U.S. is moving um, with great difficulty, but moving into a multiracial future, uh, which eventually is going to lead the Republican Party, we think, if we can keep democracy on its tracks, it's gonna lead the Republican Party uh, to move onto a different kind of path, a multiracial path, which will require it to be, not not to give up on conservatism, but to become a different kind of, uh, and a healthier uh, conservative party. So uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that another day yes hopefully that that will be the bright future and then the the fifth book can be how the republican party uh, solved the conservative dilemma without destroying american democracy Uh, and on that hopeful note this has been another episode of politics in question and uh, i think this was a really great conversation so thank you all thank you for listening to politics in question The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.